0: Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Friday, July 17th. Today, back in the day, on July 17th, 1926, Claude Jensen and John von Herberg, owners of 30 silent movie theaters from Los Angeles to Seattle, opened the 1,500-seat Hollywood Theater with great fanfare. Rose City Park residents in Northeast Portland were so impressed with the building's beauty, they renamed their neighborhood the Hollywood District. We'll start with your quick six news headlines, an update on protests in the city council with Alex Zelensky, news editor of the Portland Mercury, and an interview with local leader, former head of Dress for Success, Sherry Dunn, sharing her new endeavor. X-ray. And first up, it is time for today's quick six local rundown. Federal officers have reportedly been grabbing Portland protesters off the streets and putting them in unmarked cars. One of these protesters, Mark Pettibone, was grabbed, thrown in an unmarked vehicle, taken to the Justice Center. There, federal officers told him he was being arrested for not clear why. Then they released him. Federal officers have been using unmarked vehicles to drive around downtown Portland and detain protesters since at least July 14th. Personal accounts and videos posted online show officers driving up to people, detaining them with no explanation and driving off. Federal officers have charged at least 13 people with crimes related to the protests so far, while others have been arrested and released, including Pettybone. Federal officers have been sent to Portland reportedly to protect federal property during recent protests, but officers have been seen detaining people on Portland streets who aren't near federal property. Nor is it at all clear that all of the people who've been arrested have engaged in criminal activity. Critics are saying Donald Trump is using this as a TV spectacle. In fact, according to Governor Kate Brown, and I'm quoting, this political theater from President Trump has nothing to do with public safety, end quote. On a related note, acting Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf was in Portland on Thursday afternoon. He chastised local officials for the city's handling of the nightly demonstrations. In his statement, Wolf said Portland has been, and I'm quoting, under siege by a violent mob. Mayor Ted Wheeler said Thursday he wishes DHS leadership wasn't in town and that his office, and quoting again, hadn't been invited to meet with him, and if he were, he would decline. Multnomah County Sheriff Mike Reese was invited to meet with Department of Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf, and he tweeted out, I was under the impression this was going to be a thoughtful, honest, and open discussion, but following statements made by Secretary Wolf, it became clear law enforcement in the city of Portland was becoming highly politicized, and for that reason, I declined to meet. And here's what Governor Kate Brown had to say, also on Twitter. I told Acting Secretary Wolf that the federal government should remove all federal officers from our streets. His response showed me he is on a mission to provoke confrontation for political purposes. He is putting both Oregonians and local law enforcement officers in harm's way. And yesterday, a judge granted an injunction blocking Portland police from targeting journalists. It was Mike Simon as the judge. It prevents officers from arresting or seizing recording devices or for using physical force against reporters and legal observers documenting the protests. The ACLU announced this in a July 16th press release, emphasizing that the police can't arrest or threaten to arrest or use any physical force against journalists or legal observers unless they reasonably know, that's the quote, that person has committed a crime. U.S. District Judge Michael Simon's order expires October 30th, 2020, day before Halloween. Your daily dose of coronavirus data, aka other not so great news. 437 new cases as of Thursday, reported by the OHA. That is the biggest day ever in Oregon since March when this thing started. Half of those cases were in the Tri County area, which is also about half of our population. 108 cases in Multnomah County. That brings us to 13,509 cases. And the deaths of two more people in Malheur County bring the total to 249. OHA officials maintain the outbreaks are occurring, quote, when people get together to celebrate with family and friends. And how about recoveries? Last month, the Health Authority made a change to the way it assesses whether coronavirus patients have recovered from their illnesses. Some critics have said that change might be inflating the number of active coronavirus cases in the state. The Health Authority is now using a 60-day rule to assess recovery. Previously, health officials would call patients to track when their symptoms disappear and to assess recovery. The Klamath County Public Health Director said it artificially inflates cases, arguing that the new process no longer provides a direct correlation between the length of illness and recovery. According to the OHA most updated data, there are currently 3,129 cases in Oregon considered to be recovered, Do the math, that means we have more than 8,700 cases that are still considered active, although some of those started a while back. At least one politician is ready to call for a shutdown. Candidate for Mayor Sarah Iannarone on Thursday morning called for the resumption of the statewide stay-home order. Iannarone, who will face Mayor Ted Wheeler in a November runoff, said if Brown won't act, Wheeler should. Here's her quote. Reopening while the outbreak is at its worst levels to date is a deadly mistake, no matter what science-denying business interests and politicians think. As for Washington state, they're past 42,000 confirmed cases and past 1,400 deaths. And Jay Inslee is warned if the case numbers don't improve, he may have to start shutting down stuff again. Data is showing the pandemic is disproportionately impacting Latinx communities within Oregon. And there are ways to help. Oregon's immigrant communities have received more than $10 million in disaster relief through the Oregon Worker Relief Fund since its launch on May 10th. The fund was designed to reach those who are ineligible for other public programs because of their immigration status. Nearly all the money for the fund comes from state and city coffers. The fund had distributed its first eight and a half, 8.6 actually, million dollars in relief funds by the 1st of July helping out a little more than 5,000 people, an average of just a little over $1,700 a piece. That's according to data compiled by the Innovation Law Lab, a former X-Ray Award winner. The biggest portion of that money has gone to food service industry workers, agricultural workers, and housekeepers and janitorial workers. In April, the legislature allocated $10 million to start the fund, and it's received an additional $1.5 million in donations, including a quarter million dollars from the city of Portland. Advocates say that more funding is needed to support immigrant communities that have been hard hit by the pandemic. A big piece of the context here is that undocumented immigrants are ineligible for the unemployment insurance that has been helping so many families. The Oregon Worker Relief Fund is accepting donations. It's workerrelief.org forward slash donate. Although there's a donate button if you just go to workerrelief.org. In order to save school funding, Oregon lawmakers are looking to close two prisons. The proposal comes as lawmakers are trying to balance a huge budget shortfall created by the pandemic and business shutdowns. The rebalanced budget proposal was released Thursday by the co-chairs of the Joint Committee on Ways and Means. that Senators Betsy Johnson, Elizabeth Steiner Hayward, and Representative Dan Rayfield. The proposal floats, closing the Shutter Creek Correctional Institution and the Warner Creek Correctional Facility. Both are prisons that can hold a combined 795 inmates. Shutter Creek would close now. Warner Creek would close by 2023 at the latest. Lawmakers say they're trying to prioritize protecting the $9 billion state school fund, which pays for K-12 education in the state. About 90% of the state general fund goes to education, health and human services, and prisons. A really easy way to remember what the state general fund does, it mostly educates, medicates, and incarcerates. So if you really want to do something about the budget, you got to reduce funding in one of those categories. The proposal also includes a mix of nearly $400 million in cuts administrative savings, pulling another $400 million from the state reserve fund, and tapping a series of resource adjustments that allow the state to close a $1.1 billion budget gap. The numbers could look different if Congress passes another aid package. Oregon received $1.4 billion from the $2 trillion CARES Act passed earlier this year. The legislature does expect to return to Salem for a special session either very end of this month or maybe more likely the very beginning of August. And it turns out that Oregon's Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum is aiming to keep the redistricting measure off the November ballot. She's asking the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal to block the lower court's order. And she is asking the court to prevent the initiative from being placed on the ballot since it didn't reach nearly the number of signatures in time. And here's a quote from her statement. Any final decision made in this case could have long-reaching impacts for the state and on future ballot initiatives. And some good news. Portland's Bike Town Rental Service is poised for an expansion in September. That sounds like good news. City officials announced the expansion will include an all-electric assist fleet. You know, those bikes that help you get up hills. That fleet's going to be from Lyft. You know, Lyft with a Y, the ride-hailing giant. That means bike Town isn't going anywhere through the summer of 2025 at least. City leaders hope eventually to expand service to as many as 3,000 bikes. Users will be able to rent a bike through the new Biketown app or through Lyft's smartphone app. The contracts go before the city council July 22nd. That's next week. Come September, Portlanders are out and about could see 1,500 electric assist Biketown bikes throughout the city. That's an increase from the existing 1,000 vehicle fleet. It also doubles the service area. It includes just west of Mount Tabor, east of Powellhurst-Gilbert. Portions of North Portland are also part of the expanded territory. And those all-electric bikes? They can go up to 20 miles an hour. Fast enough to outrun the coronavirus? Depends on how fast you can sneeze. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray.
1: Alex Zelensky, news editor of the Portland Mercury, is here with us to discuss federal agent involvement in local protests, how current protests are unprecedented, and an update on city council decisions on federal CARES dollars. Here are Jefferson Smith and Alex Zelensky.
0: Alex, good morning.
1: Good
0: morning. How are you? Woo wee. That's how I am. Yeah. Woo wee. What I'm what I am dealing with now, I think, is uh, front on. I think we have dealt with this pretty well. I know your organization has had to deal with a bunch of stuff, and the, the the ripples are are some of the challenging parts, right? Including just the stress this has on folks. It doesn't that that I have not we have not had to experience direct uh, impact, right? We haven't had somebody who's gotten the illness, uh, but I think we've seen a lot of indirect impacts—not uh, not only financially, but also just in terms of people's stress, et cetera.
2: Yeah, I think burnout, COVID burnout, is very real, yeah. <laughs> especially among journalists and folks in media right now.
0: So it's been a while since we talked. Since then, a bunch has happened. Saturday evening, a federal officer shot a protester in the head with a, uh, I guess, less lethal impact weapon, uh, leading uh, him to be rushed to the hospital. What do we know now?
2: Uh, As of yesterday, I want to say, I still think that, I think that person's still in the hospital. Um, They had to have facial reconstruction surgery, I believe, Um, but... You know, I'm not really sure exactly. I know, I know that they're they're still in, in critical condition. I know that the the mayor um, has joined, uh, you know, uh, organ representatives in Congress and and senators in Congress calling on the U.S. Marshals to do a thorough investigation into the federal officer that were um, officers whoever was kind of involved in shooting this man in the head um, and you know there's it's it's tricky and I'm trying not to be too cynical about it because um, if this was a Portland police officer I think it would be a lot more transparent process I think we would know kind of what the tools would be to investigate this person a little bit more than kind of the, the black box that is the, the federal police. Um, yeah, I saw some
0: chatter. I saw some chatter that may have been somebody not just there across the way, but maybe a sniper on top of a building. Is was that just? Uh, is that? I
2: don't. I don't know. I know that there have been snipers positioned on the building, but um, I don't know. All I've seen is that video, and it didn't really look like it was coming from anywhere, but. Um, Straight in front. Yeah, straight across the street, yeah. Got it, okay. Um, But, I mean, regardless, there are these uh, federal officers kind of placed all over the federal courthouse right now. Um, Yeah, kind of up um, on, uh, you know, the awnings and the rooftops looking down at uh, protesters and, uh, you know, highly trained folks that are not usually called out for protests. They're usually called out to... Um, in, in times of uh, war and battle, um, there are also border patrol agents who, we you know, help border patrol agents treat human beings. And so, um, it, yeah, it's like it's, it's, it's different rules now, and it's kind of scary to know, um, to not know really what this process looks like in investigating um, a injury um, from, yeah, from an officer's left lethal weapon so right said, now it's, oh, it's kind of these like big calls for like yeah. make sure you investigate and let us know and make it transparent but of course like there's no one uh, you know ted wheeler and 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 state legislators and and um you know even congressional members of congress they don't
0: really have the they authority aren't generals they're not even captains
2: right yeah they can say these things and it's nice but there's no authority there to really to follow up and end it.
0: Who called them in? Previously, the National Guard had been requested by the mayor. This time, Trump just sent these folks.
2: Yeah, it was part of the. It was around July 4th that these guys were sent in. I mean, it's it's good to point out that there were federal officers down um, responding to the Portland protests for for a bit. The ones who were who already live in Portland, who who already some of them work in the federal building um, as you know guards, and so there was a presence of those um, those folks for a while but then yeah um, by July 4th Trump had called on um, an extra kind of uh, delegation of federal officers to be dispatched to different cities including Portland to protect um, statues and to also safeguard federal buildings from protesters and so the, the kind of the extra um, the extra number of people or officers who showed up downtown um, in the last couple of weeks; those were explicitly called by by the president to to um, to guard federal buildings. And so that's, I mean, that's kind of why they're there. I think a lot of people are curious as to like what what's the purpose and what's the end goal. And I mean, they're they're uh, essentially protecting and standing guard around just the federal building. They are going out into the streets in some instances, but their main Job is just to kind of like be the the guardians of this, you know, office building.
0: There's one other thing I want to get to before we got to wrap, and that is on Wednesday, the city council voted on how local CARES dollars are going to be divided up. Uh, What do we know? What are the most important takeaways we got on that?
2: Well, we know for sure there's going to be a big chunk of it going to um, small business grants and loans and just kind of supports once if ever the county reopens again and the city reopens you know kind of preparing those businesses for maybe the phase one or phase two um of reopening which you know making sure they have all the ppe they need or all of the uh you know whatever gadgets they need to, to make sure they're following the rules uh, another big chunk is going to folks who are um who are tenants and renters um who are Still struggling to pay uh, rent, and will probably once um, you know the state moratorium on evictions will end on September 30th, um, you know rents due October 1st. So, um, being able to support those folks and some rent assistance, at least temporary rent assistance, um, after you know apparently everyone's going to be you know financially um, stable in October. <laughs> I'm not really sure what that will look like. So, helping folks. They're also helping people who have uh, mortgages, homeowners, um, especially, and, and I was speaking to um, Portland Housing Bureau Director Sharon Callahan about this, but they, the city really wants to, they, they've had programs in the past that have supported and helped uh, lower income and kind of communities of color get access to owning a home. and um, And kind of, you know, some financial support and also just like navigating the system of Finding a home and and purchasing a home and so they're looking specifically at those communities too that they have helped in the past to get into homes to make sure that they can still pay their mortgage and 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 survive whatever whatever is to come or any, if, you know, any
0: big credit. matter still at issue what's you what are you yeah. watching for next
2: I think there's still a breakdown between um a couple commissioners over the amount of money that's going to support arts and culture um, kind of programs in Portland, which includes you know music venues and um, galleries and programs like um, grant programs that you know RAC creates for artists. Uh, Commissioner Joanne Hardesty um, has traditionally kind of pushed back on putting money towards those programs, saying that it's you know you're you're putting money towards buildings rather than people, you're putting money towards, you know, making Mississippi, Mississippi studios stay open versus, like, giving money directly to the employees there. Um, and Commissioner Chloe Daly is the one that's really been pushing for funding to go to these, um, you know, arts and, and culture venues and, and, and spaces, and they've kind of butted heads over if it if the money should be going towards towards actual people or bigger organizations that will employ the people and keep some things um, you know, some parts of what people really love about Portland's alive. Um, and right now it seems like Chloe Daly's push is, is winning out, at least when it comes to these CARES dollars. There is going to be a chunk of money that's going to go towards arts and cult- culture programs and grants. Um, and that has encouraged or at least inspired uh, Commissioner Hardesty to, to not want to vote to pass these CARES dollars uh, next week which regardless if there's a 3 4 vote on council it's still going to pass it's just yep. going to delay it
0: just matter well, what well what we got to say what i got to say now is thank you very much Alex.
1: yeah <laughs> thanks for having me on Sherry Dunn news anchor lawyer nonprofit ceo local leader has a new endeavor contributing to the community here is sherry with more on ITBOM and her hopes for each of us and all of us Dunn has an extensive resume from being a news anchor, professor, and CEO at Dress for Success, an organization which sets female identifying people up for economic independence. Recently, Sherry left Dress for Success to focus on a new organization, ITBOM Consulting. ITBOM Consulting focuses on coaching institutions on diversity rather than putting the responsibility on people of color. We have Sherry with us now. Good morning, Sherry. Good morning, Emily. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm even better now than I'm talking to you. How are you this morning?
3: Well, you know what? In anticipation of this call, I got up. I went to Little Tea Bakery and got a cheese danish and coffee.
1: <laughs> Fantastic. I love Little Teas. So you are on the other side of the nonprofit world. You've left Dress for Success. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good, and um,
3: you know it's a little overwhelming. Um, but the irony is, I'm I'm not even not on the other side of the nonprofit. I'm at this point squarely in the for-profit yeah. world myself, running my own business. But ironically, a lot of my initial clients have been for-profit companies. Um, and so that's been really interesting. Huh.
1: So what does itbom stand for? Yeah.
3: Okay. So um, this is not the first rodeo for itbom. I um, many years ago when I was transitioning from uh, practicing law to television news, I was doing consulting, and I decided that I would name my consulting firm back then. ITbom which stands for I'm the boss of me, <laughs> <Love it. laughs> which my mother thinks is totally appropriate since I have
1: been saying that my whole life.
3: <laughs> and so um, I decided to resurrect ITbom in this transition.
1: And what sort of work are you focused on?
3: Yeah, so um, systemic redesign is the way I like to talk about it. Mm. Um, last year, I did a talk for Moda Health. Uh, series. They have a thing called Moda Minds um, series for Moda Health. And I did a piece called Reimagining the Nonprofit. And then what I did was I talked about the historical roots of nonprofits, um, talked about race dynamics, and then talked about how and why we are funded and how it needs to change. And that formed the basis of this website I launched. And last year, I didn't know I was speaking into existence this business um, but basically, what I look at is how do you systemically redesign your organization or company to move systemic racism from center, to move systemic equity to center.
1: Mm. And what's the difference?
3: Yeah, the difference is like, you know, a lot of people do uh, EDI, DEI work, and I'm not criticizing how anybody does anything, but um, it's just different philosophy, Right. So um a lot of people approach EDI from a lens perspective and they have an EDI plan and this type of thing and those right. things sit separate from the work of the organization right they're like okay we have this plan and we have the statement and nothing changes mm-hmm. and so what i'm trying to do is shift the thinking that your systems have to change it's much bigger than a plan it's getting into an organization and looking at how systemic racism is showing up in every aspect and then curing for that, right? Because the goal is try to change your system to equity. So if we look at hiring, we look at supervision, we look at your internal and external presentation to see how systemic racism is impacting and has historically impacted your business and then together co-create how we're gonna change that to a more systemically equitable model. Does that make
1: sense? Yeah, absolutely makes sense. So do you start with an assessment? Sort of like what's the first step when you're working with a company or a nonprofit organization in this work?
3: Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, ironically, most of the people I'm working with have already had (laughs) assessments and already have had EDI work that just didn't go anywhere. So what I do then is I come in and I look at that material, and then I do what I like to call a level set. Um, for a person's industry so I provide clients usually starts with the executive team materials to read and those materials um, are looking at how systemic racism shows up in our society but then I also tailor it to the clients particular industry and this is really helpful to build a bridge and make equity work connected to the work and then once we start there we start to um, do what people call ideation, which is we start to work together to try to ideate, okay, what, where are the problems showing up? Let's take a look at your hiring process. Do people have to fill out a survey? What is Who wrote that survey? You know, we really start digging into the specifics. And then I give them a recommendation about how they can change that, and then we try to co-create that change, right? So what I try not to do is to come into an organization, say, I have all the answers, and here's your neat little plan, no, I want them to have skin in the game. I want them to help redesign the process with me, right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how that works.
1: And as you said, there are organizations who have been checking the DEI box. They have an equity statement. They might even have an equity plan, but that doesn't. The work doesn't go much beyond that. What do you think is getting in the way when institutions don't act on? some of that initial foundation work that they've done.
3: I personally think, and this is, you know, why I started my company is that the way it's presented and done, it feels separate from their overall mission and work. Mm. It feels like an add on. Right. And so, you know, when people get busy, they just are like, Oh yeah, we were supposed to look at that document, you know? And so I think because it is not integrated into their work, it doesn't get done. And, um, Part of that is systemic racism, right? And then part of that is just um, the nature of the beast of work. People get caught up in what they're doing and they, they, they're not going to stop to pick up the manual or try to make sure they're, you know, it, it, unless they have made those systemic changes back to the system, unless they've made those systemic changes throughout the organization, it just generally isn't going to get done.
1: Are there organizations locally or nationally who are doing this work well that, that you look to for inspiration? Um, I I can't say,
3: and I wouldn't say necessarily because I would really have to be inside a company to say that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, what I see from outside and what's going on inside, we now know, especially with, in the light of a lot of companies putting out George Floyd statements and then getting incredible blowback from their employees is that mm, we don't really know what goes on inside people's houses especially when it comes to uh, equity work what I like to tell people is for me it's like renovating a home you know what I don't know what I'm going to cover till I get in there and start pulling up the floorboards and see what's going on you know Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't really feel comfortable necessarily saying like this person because I don't I I haven't been deeply enough in the houses to know what's going on. I know what people are saying externally, but that doesn't always match up with happening internally.
1: Yeah. So we're in a historic moment right now where Black Lives Matter is a regular phrase that many people are saying around the world. Um what I think how to how to ask you this question. Um, how are you thinking about the flood of interest that you're getting mm-hmm. for uh, nonprofits or for profits across this community and beyond? You know, there's there's folks who are feeling a new sense of. Urgency in this work, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and for some, you know, it's way overdue. And I, I would imagine mm-hmm. that there might be an eye roll or two <laughs> mm-hmm. in your in your world. I know I feel it sometimes. Like, oh, great, you're you're finally coming to the party, you know. Mm-hmm. So, how are you thinking about channeling this energy and supporting the flood of interest that you might be seeing?
3: Well, you know, it's funny. I say this facetiously all the time to people on the phone, but people want to solve racism by the end of July. Mm. I swear to God. They're like, oh, you know, they have an urgency, but <laughs> their urgency is a little ridiculous. I mean, you know, it, it, basically that's what it feels like. You know, they're like 400 and plus years of slavery and racism. Can you solve it by the end of July? And it's like, no, <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so there's that. Um, and then there is something about um, this point that Doris, Kearns Goodwin, who's a historian, said about she was quoting a speech that Lyndon Johnson gave talking about how history convenes at a certain moment and Johnson talked about, you know, um, during the Civil War, um, during the Revolutionary War, you know, and then he talked about the Civil Rights Movement in Selma, and then the historian uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin said, and so it was also in Minneapolis, right? And so, in some sense, there's a there's a historical confluence of events that just pinpoints history and you know with people being home during COVID and and the ability of social media and the advent of cell phones and all those things work together that to watch a man die Mm -hmm. calling for his mother was too much for the human soul of many many people and and people decided I don't want this done in my name. Is this done in my name? Is this supposed to be protecting me? You know, and so it, it pricks something in the conscious that hasn't been been touched like that in a long time, probably since, you know, people saw the kids getting bit, bitten by dogs and water holes back in the 60s in civil rights. It's, it's something on that scale. And so to that extent, it is sad for um, people of color, particularly black people, who've been saying all along what has been going on and mm. feeling gaslit when you try to explain it. And then to have people finally go, oh my God, I didn't know it was that bad. You know, mm. it's really, it's a little disconcerting. It's definitely a little disconcerting. And and yet I'm very mindful of the fact that so many people are interested in the work I'm doing because George Floyd died. And so I, I feel a, a strong sense of obligation and responsibility um, as a result of that.
1: Mm. Sherry, how can our listeners best support your work? Uh, read
3: a book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, learn something for God's sake. I mean, you know, the thing that this whole episode has revealed is that America has done every, all of us a disservice, but particularly white Americans. You have been bamboozled and you have been lied to about your own history. And so it is imperative, I think, of white Americans to start educating themselves. I mean, we live in a country, mm-hmm. in, a, in a world where, you know, white people historically are, they love to seek knowledge, they love to learn things, they learn about black people, learn about people who literally live amongst you. You know, the lack of knowledge and information about, uh, slavery, uh, Jim Crow, uh, Recon- Reconstruction and Jim Crow, and even civil rights beyond the simplistic kind of things people know about uh, MLK. It's just shocking. Mm-hmm. It is just shocking, and and I know it has a lot to do with the educational system that teaches us a child's view of history, you know, because it's possible to hold two ideas at once. One is that America is a grand and amazing um you know, experiment. And the other is that America is a flawed and deeply troubled institution. You can hold both ideas and you can, you, you know, your goal is to see the country go toward its founding ideals, which are indeed quite noble, but indeed quite fa- flawed, right? And so the critique that black people bring to American history and culture is not a critique of hatred, Mm-hmm. It's a critique of a desire to see the country be better and do better. Mm-hmm. And so for white people to really understand that they just serious, seriously need to pick up some books, read some magazines, listen to a podcast, educate yourself on things that apparently uh, you don't know and weren't educated on. Mm-hmm. So, and it's your history, too. It's not just black history. It's your history, too. You
1: know. Sherry, where can folks find your work? Um, I have a website. It's called the, T-H-E, Sherry, S-H-A-R-I,
3: Dunn, the U-N-N.com, the Sherry Dunn.com. Because Sherry Dunn was taken, I had to go with the Sherry Dunn. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I like it. I like it. Sherry, thank you so much for joining us this morning and sharing your work.
3: Thank you for having me, Emily, my outfellow. <laughs>
1: <elf> <laughs> I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Sherry. Okay.
0: Bye. Big thanks to our production team. Editing Wizardry by Will Romi. Writers, DJ Ambush, Casey Colton, Kate K, Julia Oppenheimer, Joy Paulchik, Miranda Selinger, writers, Sherwood, Jamie Zangle, and co-executive producer, Emily Gilliland, and I'm Jefferson Smith. Thank you for original journalism and research by the Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, COVID-19.healthdata.org, the Oregon Historical Society, the Oregon Encyclopedia, Portland Business Journal, The Week, Pamplin Media, OPB, The Oregonian, the Statesman Journal, Bike Portland Eater, KTVZ, Street Roots, Coin, and News Partners, Bridge Liner, and the Portland Mercury. And thank you for listening to local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Please do rate and review. Please give it five stars. Five stars, please. And subscribe and spread the word. Thank you, democracy. Talk to you on Monday.
3: X-Ray.